In 2012, comedian Tig Notaro dropped by an L.A. club for her regular end-of-weekend set. She'd done it a hundred times. But that night felt different. I have cancer. How are you? Hi, how are you? Is everybody having a good time? I have cancer. How are you? Ah, it's a good time. Diagnosed with cancer. <sighs> Feels good. Just diagnosed with cancer. <sighs> God. Oh my God. It's weird because with humor, the equation is tragedy plus time equals comedy. I am just at tragedy. Just four days before stepping on stage that night, Tig had been diagnosed with cancer in both breasts. And she'd found a way to make that funny. Getting up on stage by yourself to try and make a room full of people laugh consecutively, it's hard to think of a more exposing art form. But to use your cancer diagnosis as the source material for your off-the-cuff jokes, that's just a whole other level. Some of the biggest names working in comedy at that time took to social media, declaring it a moment in comedy. This second boom stand-up comedy is experiencing, while there's tons to laugh at, feels less driven by punchlines and more by comedians' introspection and personal insights. Nearly every week, there's a new special out that mines the personal narrative and struggles of another of our favorite comics. And while it's hard to match what Tig's done, it's hard to think of a time where a wave of comedians have been this consistently open and transparent with their audiences. Even at the end of more traditional sets, you get the feeling that comedians feel compelled to give us a message or takeaway instead of just a big laugh. I mean, some comics have made this kind of vulnerability funny. Others have made it, well, easy to forget you're watching a comedy show. There's been a wider cultural shift that comedy is both driving and responding to. And that tone change has welcomed style and format shifts as well. Comedians are being made into and allowed to be more than laugh factories. The traditional format, laugh-per-minute-driven road comedians appealing to the masses, is all but dead. Taking their place? Comedians as TED Talkers, as performance artists, as preachers, prophets, and pundits. What's shared on stage is more varied than ever, but some think the form is being constrained. You can say anything, but you can't just say anything. So, in this era of vulnerable, experimental, and message-driven comedy, what are comedians trying to do other than make us laugh? Today, we're looking at this shift in tone, format, and purpose, and the complications that have come with them. I'm your host, Ron Tight, and this is The Coup.
In comedy, a lot of people are seeing that there's more to their work than making people laugh. Canadian stand-up veteran and friend Jessica Holmes is one of them. Jessica is best known for her work on The Jessica Holmes Show and is a cast member of CBC's beloved sketch show, Royal Canadian Air Force. Live, it's Friday with Royal Canadian Air Force. This is Air Force Live. Like me, she shifted her focus away from performing traditional stand-up comedy to something more vulnerable and less laugh-driven. I wanted to hear what Jessica thinks of this trend in stand-up and how she sees herself in comedy now. I'm a comedian, but I need to just be brave and say what I really am, which is a keynote speaker. I do uh, motivational comedy. And I think what makes me feel like I can't say that that's my job is because (laughs) no one in the comedy community knows what that is. I feel like the cool kids at Second City um, will think that I've just drifted off and now I do data entry. Um, (laughs) (laughs) After 25 years of performing, Jessica published her second book last year called Depression, The Comedy, A Tale of Perseverance. People are afraid to talk about depression. And I knew if anyone can give a gentle, silly, fun intro into this, it's a comedian who's been depressed. I'm having this much fun now. Yeah. But I was couldn't get off the sofa for six months four years ago. Yeah. I even said to myself, come what may, maybe I'll be branded as the downer comedian. But I just knew I had to give two years just in case me being gentle and silly about this dark subject could let people talk about it a little more easily. And it has worked. And while comedians have been joking about the dark stuff for decades, it was usually in service of the laugh. You know, comedians wouldn't just share the raw, intimate details of their lives. They'd share the polished parts, you know, the funny stuff. For Jessica, it's great if people can laugh along, but she is focused on getting real with audiences now. So I think I was getting a little deeper and going through things in my life where I just felt like I I wanted more meaning. While I'm up there telling my jokes, um, I remember thinking, if there's a bad gig from now on, I want it to be a bad gig where at least I know a few people took my message to heart. And I've always been a, not even necessarily a spiritual person, but a, a person who feels responsible for what I put out into the world. So I wasn't at peace just doing comedy. I just couldn't, I wasn't excited about it anymore. And Jessica isn't alone in stretching the craft to accommodate what she needs to say. Some of the biggest names in comedy are getting personal and they're finding success doing it. People who did establish themselves as just happy, fun, good time comedians with still a message. Yeah. I think they've seen it all and done it all and they now want to dig deeper. So I don't know whether that's what audiences wanted or not, or were craving. But I feel like once a comedian gets to a certain point today, they feel like they have to dig deeper. I think it's a status thing or a ego thing or just a sense of responsibility. So maybe it's that our relationship with these comedians is so deep, we feel we know them so well. And we get to a point with them where we also feel like they have wisdom they must have wisdom or kindness to do this. That's what I got yeah. from Dave Chappelle. I felt like he must have so much kindness in him yeah. to want to come out here and make sure everybody gets what's really happening in the world. In most cases, this trend has looked like comedians peeling their personas back and telling us about their darkest moments. Whatever the reason, there's still something, I don't know, delightful 
about seeing someone like Adam Sandler holding back tears on stage. That's right, even Adam, it's cool to pee in your pants, Sandler is getting in on the feels. In his recent Netflix special, 100% Fresh, he sings a straight-up rock ballad for his late friend and comedy legend, Chris Farley. I bawled my eyes out. And in 2017, comedian Hassan Minhaj broke out with his first special, Homecoming King, where he spoke candidly about the racism he experienced growing up in suburban America. It was like this cinematic memoir live on stage. At times, it, well, it wasn't funny at all. And it wasn't trying to be. It was beautiful. And while punchlines can still be found scattered throughout these sets, they feel less like the main event than what comedians are saying or not saying in the silence that comes after them. I had to get used to it because at first, when I started doing these keynotes, during that silent moment, I'd start crying. Because <laughs> right. I would just feel like, oh my gosh, that really is a sad story. Or that really is like, that was tough. And I am proud of myself. And the audience didn't mind. They they were like, oh, you know what? It is a beautiful moment, but uh, not super professional. And also, I can't be crying every day <laughs> on stage. So um, <laughs> How was the show with the comedian? She cried. <laughs> she cried. That two-step of I talk, you laugh is predictable for seasoned comedians. But a wider emotional range brings them and the audience into a whole new rhythm. So while you may feel ready to get vulnerable, you may not be prepared for your audience's reaction to that vulnerability. If comedians want to run up to their emotional edge without falling off, they need to practice their approach because one wrong step and your set can go downhill fast. I do enough comedy for the first 20 minutes and then they let down their guard and they know that I'm a safe person. They know I've made fun of myself enough if I get your feelings out, it's okay because I already put my feelings on the line. And though it's easy to lose the thread here, this authentic soul-bearing style that's recently been injected into the mainstream isn't new. For The Baffler, writer Soraya Roberts traces the roots of Hannah Gadsby's subversive special Nanette back to the 70s. Quote, Funny women originated honest storytelling after carving out a space for themselves in a community controlled by men, end quote. Thanks to the discrimination and gatekeeping by a class of predominantly white, cis, straight men, for decades, comedians who were women, queer, trans, and people of color were often excluded by or felt unwelcome in comedy clubs and instead were relegated to create their own spaces. Continuing, Soraya says these scenes led to the creation of alt-comedy, a genre known for, quote, eschewing tight routines in favor of experimenting with the truth, end quote. She cites women like Whoopi Goldberg, who during that time in her one-woman special, Spook Show, included a monologue about a self-administered abortion. And while Jessica's been bringing more of herself to the stage, the new generation of comics... They're living on stage. My acting agent um, said to me, you know, you just have to get more videos online. I was like, what do you mean? It sounds complicated. Do I get a crew? And he's like, no, you point the camera at you and you say funny things. And I'm like, but that's letting people into my soul, into my space. Anyway, it's just, it's so not natural to me, but just, you know, for them, that's this generation's comedy. While living in front of the camera may feel like the height of vulnerability to Jessica... 
for millennials and Gen Zers or Gen Zers, whatever we call them. Social media isn't just a place for life updates or even just to workshop new material. I mean, it's a stage just as valid as any comedy clubs. Those who've come up online and through all scenes are delivering fresh, nuanced perspectives and styles to increasingly segmented audiences. You may not have even heard of them, but they got a lot of people laughing. For a long time, appealing to the masses was necessary if you wanted to make it big. Being general enough, relatable enough, humorous enough, it was basically a requirement. And for those who couldn't cut it at the local yuck-yucks, well, I guess you just weren't very funny, were ya? I mean, let's be real, that so-called general mass never really did include everyone. But with alt-comedy's influence and the internet's democratization of the industry's pipeline, that one-size-fits-all, everyman voice has all but disappeared. Now people are, are being way more specific in, in their subject matter and more personal in their subject matter. That's Sherilyn Johnson. I got in touch with her to get a sense of how this new generation is disrupting stand-up and how some are managing to turn things like prejudice and depression into punchlines. Sherilyn's a comedy reporter? Uh, and nobody makes their living doing just that. Uh, I'll put it that way. Um, it is uh, a labor of love more than anything. I have always been a huge comedy nerd. Uh, loved that you can create a piece of art out of thin air and just with words. Before writing about it became her career, Sherilyn grew up in Winnipeg, where she'd stay up past her bedtime to hear comedians like George Carlin and catch the odd scene and sketch from Saturday Night Live. Since then, Sherilyn's profiled comedians like Conan O'Brien and Mark Maron and co-authored the Superfans Guide to Stephen Colbert. In reporting on the industry over the years, Sherilyn says it's not just the material that's changing, it's the sheer amount of it. It's hard to explain to younger people how little comedy media was available in like the mid nineties. Right. Like you would walk into HMV, which I have to explain to them was a record store and you would look for the comedy section. And if it existed, there would be two weird Al CDs and one Jeff Foxworthy. And like, that was it. it. (laughs) So we're in such a rich time for comedy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's going to not taper off. You know, in the 80s, we had a a comedy boom where every corner bar was doing an open mic. It feels a lot like what's happening now. And while comedians have built massive audiences on virtually every social platform, Netflix is arguably what's led us to the second comedy boom we're experiencing now. The streaming giant has been instrumental in regalvanizing the stand-up special format. Last year alone, it released about 50 original specials. In 2006, HBO released four. And that disparity makes sense. I mean, before Netflix got in the game, the hour-long special wasn't just another marker of having made it. It meant you were one of the greats. Now, landing a deal with a major streaming platform or self-releasing a 30-minute to hour-long set is seen more as a rite of passage, something as common and necessary as touring. It used to be that if you got a one-hour special, you were a huge deal. It was an HBO or Showtime special, and that was it. And it was only the people at the top of their game. Um, and everything else was in five or seven-minute chunks. An evening at the Improv on A&E, you know, Comedy on the Road. Uh, Comedy Central was doing Premium Blend. Those were seven-minute spots and set. And the, the five-minute set still exists, but it is no longer the majority of what people consume. So 
I think it's a, the death of that being the only option and that being even something that people would watch in that way, just because everything is so available and customizable to your taste. You know, you can go on YouTube, you can go on, on any platform and find, you know, a sample of somebody that you might be interested to see and then immediately see more of them. Um, it's just so much easier to consume comedy, you know, specifically stand-up comedy that way. But Netflix's reign may be coming to an end. This October, Bloomberg reported that, quote, after pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into stand-up comedy specials from the likes of Jerry Seinfeld and Dave Chappelle, Netflix, Inc. is cutting back. Instead, they'll be focusing on more bite-sized stand-up content. But aside from Netflix's role in stand-up's disruptive second boom, what Sherilyn finds striking about this era is the style and experimentation this new class of comedians has ushered in. You know, different is rewarded now more than ever. So there's less, and we're already, I think we're already seeing a bit of this, less yeah. concern with pleasing everybody and just speak to, you know, a certain type of nerd or a certain type of, you know, mom or a certain type of, you know. We're going to have gamer comedians and we're going to have organic food eating comedians. Yeah, I, honestly, I think it, it may end up breaking down that way. I think that opens up a lot more possibilities for comedians. They're no longer scared that they're going to miss the boat because they're doing something weird on stage. And as emerging creators continue to identify and carve out niche and nichier audiences, more of the material and work being produced is highly specific and very referential, meaning that it's more clear than ever that who and what is considered funny can get pretty subjective. And that has a lot to do with comedy's new talent pipeline. After years of sitcoms, specials, and sketch shows generating nearly the exact same ugh, my wife comedy personas, some of today's most celebrated comedians and shows got the green light after being discovered online. Like Broad City, which before getting picked up by Amy Poehler and Comedy Central, started as comedians Alana Glazer and Abby Jacobson's low-budget YouTube web series. Or like Jabuki Young White, who, after going viral on Twitter for his sharp social commentary, got his first writing credit with Netflix's acclaimed American Vandal. And now... We're proud to announce our newest Daily Show edition, senior youth correspondent Jabuki Young White, everybody! But Sherilyn thinks the pipeline, well, that's all but dried up. I think the era of someone being able to uh, get famous and get discovered from YouTube or from Twitter or something like that is gone. Uh, like that gold rush, I think, is over. Because there's just too much shit? Too much shit. Uh, it used to be easy to, if you had really good content, you could stand out and get the views. And now it's, I think it's fruitless for a lot of really talented people. Um, not to say that anyone stopped, you know, trying to do that because you do have to have a presence. And while there are many we can credit with opening up the online floodgates, for me, there's one comedian who stands out. Hi, gang. Uh... Just woke up, so I thought I'd serenade you, serenade you rather, with a song. Uh... In 2006, a teenaged Bo Burnham, the musical comedian and director of the 2018 critical darling Eighth Grade, posted a YouTube video of himself performing an original song. Baby, I wish you could go back to the way it was. It's not easy now because. 
it went viral, and he gained a dedicated following soon after. With a style that's both silly and self-aware, Burnham's songs take aim at things like our culture's obsession with fame or the absurdity of prejudice. And a decade after posting that first video, he released his second special, Make Happy. In his finale, a lighthearted parody evolves into a raw, confessional-like monologue during which Burnham bears his soul and implicates his audience while doing it. A part of me loves you, part of me hates you, part of me needs you, part of me fears you, and I don't think that I can handle this right now, handle this right now, I don't think that I can handle this right now, I don't think that I can handle this right now. I don't think that I can handle this right. I don't think that I can handle this right. I look at them, they're just staring at me like, come and watch the skinny kid with a steadily declining mental health. And laugh as he attempts to give you what he cannot give himself. It's one of the most genuine and affecting moments I've ever seen in stand-up. And the contrast in tone and message is what makes it so powerful. But by far, the moment mainstream stand-up scaled both its vulnerability and format-pushing peaks was last year, when Hannah Gadsby released her critically beloved and divisive special, Nanette. I make you all feel tense, and then I make you laugh, and you're like, oh, thanks for that. <laughs> I was feeling a bit tense. I made you tense. This is an abusive relationship. Beyond building a connection with her audience, Sherilyn says Gadsby engaged them. The content, I think, is groundbreaking because it demands extreme empathy from the audience. Uh, I think you are getting an insight into a person uh, that you don't normally get in such a like a stark way in a, you know, usually in a, in a stand-up set, you learn about a person, you know, joke, 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 sort of the first half of that show. Um, and you get lulled into understanding who this person is throughout the course of the hour. Um, and she starts that way and then goes way deeper. In Nanette, Gadsby tells stories about growing up in Tasmania as a lesbian with autism. And then about halfway through the set, things start to unravel. Or rather, the straightforward narrative Gadsby delivered does. She revisits a story she told at the beginning of the set, pointing out that she'd changed the ending so the punchline would work. She'd done it because traditional comedy has required that she both create and relieve tension. Here's Sherilyn. So, you know, the laughter is the release of the tension. You know, the the creation of the of the tension doesn't always have to end with a punchline in a the same rhythm that every other joke does. Um, so so yeah, playing with tension that way is is uh, certainly an interesting new development. I think there isn't the demand anymore to be set up punch set up punch. And even though it seems counterintuitive to the fact that our attention spans have been completely shot. 
it does pull people in a bit more. Like another person, uh, Chris Gethard, uh, who did a show uh, called Career Suicide, and it was all about mental illness uh, and wanting to commit suicide. Um, and it gets very dark in certain places and goes a long time without a laugh, and it's fine. Um, I, and I think that is just the comfort of knowing that not everybody, not everybody is working towards that five-minute Johnny Carson set anymore. There are, you know, different ways of finding success now, and you don't have to have the tight five. I'll be honest. I mean, initially, I was not a fan of Bo Burnham. Come on, he was a YouTube guy. He wasn't doing stand-up, so I wrote him off. And while I've thankfully adjusted to the reality of the new stand-up styles and formats like Bo's we're seeing, some of the old guard, well, they've been having a harder time. Here's the thing. As the alt scene has gone mainstream, it's ushered in new standards when it comes to inclusivity. Specifically, all comics popularize this philosophy of punching up, targeting your jokes, you know, your criticism, your mocking, at the powerful versus punching down using marginalized and disenfranchised people as the punchline. Some veteran comedians have said this concern around inclusivity and avoiding offense, well, that amounts to censorship and creates rules in comedy where there shouldn't be any. Everything we say can and will be used against us in the court of public opinion. And they're coming for the comedians first. And I think what we've reached now is a point where anything that seems to be the slightest bit critical of any group or individual is out of bounds. I, I, I don't play colleges, but I hear a lot of people tell me don't go near colleges, they're so peaceful. I take a risk, if you don't like it, I have to take it on the chin. Comedians shouldn't have to adapt to change to, to PC. People that are too sensitive should become more thick-skinned. Saturday Night Live announcing its parting ways with its newest cast member, Shane Gillis. Four days after video surfaced of the comedian referring to We're gonna go through everyone's history. Or are we going to get rid of every sketch that SNL has done that involves race? Just because you're offended, it doesn't mean you're right. Look, I've always believed philosophically in the power of comedy, in the potential of comedy. And I think that comedy should not follow any rules. Comedians should be able to look at any issue from a completely different perspective and find the humor in it because that is what leads to real conversations and hopefully social change. But we have to be aware of power and privilege while we're doing it because that's what affects whether our jokes land or they don't. I understand why some veteran comics have their backs up. I mean, take a comic like Bill Burr, who I love. He grew up in a time where he was taught this is what comedy is. Anything and everything is fair game. And now somebody's telling him that what he did to be successful is no longer viable? It's what's happened in nearly every industry. But let's be real. If you look at the people dying on this hill, well, I'll just say I don't hear any young people saying that you can't be funny anymore. I think it's kind of funny that veteran comedians are saying, on one hand, there should not be any rules in comedy. Yet on the other hand, are applying very specific rules to the art form. Hannah Gadsby's set, that's not stand-up. I only laughed at like half the stuff. 
oh, you're on YouTube? Well, then you're not a comedian. See, there's no one way to be a comedian and there's no one right way to do stand-up. And new comedians are calling BS on the so-called rules of the form. On a recent episode of Vulture's Good One podcast, Jesse David Fox and comedian Emily Heller sum it up pretty well. All the rules of comedy were invented by like terrible comedian, terrible road comedians in the 80s who were so bitter that they met, demanded <laughs> young comedians obey their rules of what yeah. comedy was. They also don't want student debt forgiven. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> it's yeah. And I think that like a lot of the a lot of the times I've talked to other comedians about like these voices in the backs of our heads telling us how to do comedy and that we don't really question. But when we do when we're like, wait, what is that voice? Whose voice is that? Who is that person telling me that if I don't get up on stage every day, I'm not a real comedian? When you look into it, you're like, oh, it's an open micer I met in 2011. <laughs> Why am I listening to that guy? And while more comedians are getting vulnerable by spilling their guts and experimenting with new styles and formats, much of their material is becoming more outwardly political and message-driven as well. For some comedians, just being on stage and sharing stories from their day-to-day -day life is political. But for others, explicitly challenging and educating audiences is at the heart of their material. Whether it's pointing out the absurdity of prejudice, satirizing today's news, or pitching an alternative take on an age-old issue, comedy's conscious has never been more apparent. And while comedians haven't always been as bold about their views, they've always been political. I mean, you do remember George Carlin, right? I have certain rules I live by. My first rule, I don't believe anything the government tells me. Nothing. It's a fine line, though, between riffing and ranting. If comedians aren't careful, their politics may trump their material. To get a better sense of this development in comedy, I sat down with my friend, Steve Patterson. Why don't you tell us what you do, Steve? Uh, I'm a comedian. <laughs> and how's that working out for you? Pretty good so far. <laughs> Steve's been doing stand-up for years, and he's the host of CBC's hit radio show, The Debaters. It's a touring comedy show featuring some of the country's funniest comics facing off on the day's most polarizing issues. Coming up with material that has a point of view, and that's first and foremost funny, is something Steve works hard to deliver. And he thinks there's a reason stand-up is the ideal form for it. Comedy is a night to go out and see someone speaking for real. It's even, it's a different escape than going to a, a play. It's, this person's talking to me. I can actually interact with them back for real. You know, you can't do that during Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dream Call. No. The camel's not talking back. And while it's already embedded in Steve's comedic style, he thinks socially conscious stand-up is in demand because of how polarizing our politics and culture are. I think that, People show up at shows pretty angry. There's so much in the world that's fake right now. The uh, election of leaders who don't know what we've always felt they didn't know what they're doing, but now they're really just openly hateful and ignorant. So uh, I, I think that we're just in a time where there's so much fake in the world that comedy has become, we need to go here for what's real and be able to laugh at it. Because if we can't laugh at it, we're just going to get too angry. Look, good comedy acknowledges what I call the reality of the room. 
Sometimes that means pointing out how unbelievably short the mic stand is, and other times it means talking about the stuff that's happening offstage. Right now, audiences are coming to shows, whether for political or personal reasons, a lot of them. They're frustrated, concerned, and they're distracted. And if everyone, I don't know, just got the latest push notification about a certain world leader being impeached, well, it'll be harder to really get your message across. Whether that's a riff on poorly timed farts or an impassioned bit about rampant sexual harassment without nodding to the thing that may be pulling your audience's attention, even if just to avoid it. But along with the critiques of stand-up's injection of personal storytelling and political correctness, there's also been some eye-rolling when it comes to message and issues-driven comedy, especially when the material isn't funny. Comedian and late-night host Seth Meyers summed up the phenomenon. Clapter. It's the audience's response to a political joke that says, yes, I too have the righteous opinions of the day. In Tina Fey's telling of it, speaking to Reader's Digest in 2008, quote, it means they sort of approve but didn't really like it that much. You hear a lot of that on The Daily Show, unquote. And Steve thinks that effectively getting his viewpoint across doesn't just mean speaking truth to power. People can head to a protest for that. It means finding what's funny in unfunny things. I think that it's... Uh easier to take something if you're entertained. And I, I happen to think the best form of entertainment is laughing. And I tune out to almost everything else, which I know is not a very dignified answer to give. But if I'm not laughing every few minutes at something, then, uh, then I'm not engaged. You know, it gives you permission to to speak about certain things, the George Carlins of the world. It's It's social commentary at its best. And when I say, you know, you need to entertain. I do believe you should also have a point of view and be saying something worthwhile. For comics to get away with bringing morality and especially anger into their comedy, they need to make sure they're saying something new and that's authentic to their own experience. Otherwise, it can just come off as righteous. Here's Steve. I have to struggle to not, you know, you start to write stuff about things. You're like, this is just anger. This is just an angry rant. There's no comedy here yet. In order to get to what's funny, Steve says you need to ask yourself what's underneath that initial reaction. I think that once you're being honest about it, not just kind of uh, angry, but just honest about it and just making it a logical, rational argument, that's lacking in news and in politics these days. Yeah. So it's weird because I host a show where we are making... Uh, Ridiculous debates all the time. We have comics doing debates. Comedians will make rational arguments that are also funny that people are now, okay, that's actually, I'm listening to it. And there's no better place for political commentary than at the White House. Last year at its annual correspondence dinner, the night Washington media puts on a bow tie to rub shoulders with the politicians they cover, comedian Michelle Wolf put the entire political and media elite on notice easy to make fun of, you know? It's like shooting fish in a Chris Christie. <laughs> but I also want to make fun of Democrats. Democrats are harder to make fun of because you guys don't do anything. <laughs> People think you might flip the House and Senate this November, but you guys always find a way to mess it up. You're somehow going to lose by 12 points to a guy named Jeff Pedophile Nazi Doctor. <laughs> Oh, he's a doctor. 
The roast was blistering and all delivered with her trademark nasally deadpan. But it was her parting shot that really shocked the gallery. And it wasn't even a joke. Just a shout out to a slow motion catastrophe, a major American city, mostly with working class communities of color who for decades have had their drinking water contaminated with toxic levels of lead, a mic drop, and then she's out. And it resonates with what's happening in the wider cultural conversation. What kind of moral content does and does not belong in comedy? And I get it. Sanctimony is barely tolerable, let alone funny. But I think Wolf is a good test case for what makes it work. And a lot of comedians agree. Here's Dave Chappelle's take. I know how hard it is to do what she did in front of that lame crowd. And she, I think she nailed it. I thought it was beautiful. And I, I didn't see her pander once. And while it may not be his style, Steve respects her commitment to saying something honest that matters because it's clear she knew that wouldn't get a laugh. You know, if you look at that on paper, like this is not a big laugh, but I'm closing on it and, and, and kudos to her. So I think, you, I think you're right. This is a great opportunity for comedy to, to get out there more and say important things versus, you know, whatever various non-important things are said in comedy. Mo- yeah. Many of which I've certainly talked about myself. <laughs> yeah. Steve's version of truth telling isn't about being right. His goal is to craft a message that people can genuinely connect with, especially when they don't share his politics. I've done shows for people that I don't agree at all politically with. I, I think if anyone could try to make, uh, you know, the pipelines funny, I'm not sure we're quite there yet, but that's that's something that's kind of dividing Canada right now is, you know, do we or don't we, or, or at least about climate change. It's not hard to find problems these days, so I'm actually <laughs> trying to think of half comedic solutions. That's, yeah. that's my job. Steve, in most comics, pushes himself to dig beneath his anger. Because to do otherwise, well, that would be lazy. Comedy is an unforgiving medium, and there's nothing more of an eye roll than saying what people already know. When it comes to cooking up jokes with moral perspective, I think your credibility boils down to four simple ingredients. Start with craft. That's a given. Stir in authenticity and an ability to read the room. Boil for 15 years, give or take. And then... Here's the secret ingredient, bravery, which not everyone seems to have a lot of. If there ever was a time to use comedy to set up a message, if there ever was a time to go, I'm going to craft a set to deliver a really important message, it was Louis C.K. returning to the comedy cellar. Right. And if anybody could do it, it's him. Right. He's on the other the other side of it if there's another he's side. He's on the other it. side of it. But even but, but he's brilliant. Like and and his, he's raw and he's honest and all that kind of stuff. Like, look, I want to see what he's gonna do. And then he didn't, didn't do, do it. it. He's embarrassed him, himself. The guy that couldn't get embarrassed uh and didn't care if anyone else was embarrassed is thoroughly embarrassed. It's it is odd that he couldn't embrace that because that's what he is known for is is raw honesty. And he wants to just put it behind him, pretend it didn't happen, but it did. And uh, and that's why I think everyone's kind of, yeah, they're let down, I think. Uh, and that's not why everyone's let down. There's a few reasons to be, <laughs> few reasons to be let down by Louis. 
Louis C.K. did come clean about his allegations in an open letter that ended with his pledge to, quote, step back and take a long time to listen. That's why it surprised many when an audio recording leaked last fall with Louis C.K.'s first set since his absence that was long on outrage and short on contrition. He spent most of the set sounding off on kids these days. I don't know they testify in front of Congress, these kids. Like, what the fuck? What are you doing? You're young. You should be crazy. You should be unhinged. Not in a suit saying, I'm here to tell. Fuck you. You're not interesting. Because you went to a high school where kids got shot? Why does that mean I have to listen to you? Why does that make you interesting? You didn't get shot. You pushed some fat kid in the way. And now I got to listen to you talking? Not only did he ignore the reality of the room, he betrayed his own comedic voice. Did he fail as a person? Well, it's not for me to say. But did he fail as a comedian? Completely. I mean, whether you think Aziz Ansari addressed his Me Too moment well at the beginning of his special, he addressed it. See, vulnerability can be powerful when it's genuine. And that doesn't mean being perfect. It means being honest. Honest about where you personally stand when it comes to the issues you're riffing on. And while I think this particular style of stand-up special as memoir, as documentary, may be on its way out, the bravery that's enabled it isn't going anywhere. Just take Kelly Bachman. Harvey Weinstein, the disgraced movie mogul making a rare appearance out Wednesday night at a club in New York City. He was confronted multiple times, including by comic Kelly Bachman, who skewered him from the stage. I found out pretty quickly that he was invited and no one was going to ask him to leave, so um, I was totally shocked. I'm feeling a little tense. Anybody else? Yeah. I'm a comic. And it's our job to name uh, the elephant in the room. Do we know what that is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, a Freddy Krueger in the room, if you will. I didn't know that we have to bring our own maze and uh, rape whistles to Actors Hour, y'all. No? No? Oh, shut up. Yeah. This kills at uh, group therapy for rape survivors. <laughs> They love it, yeah. Woo! Woo! Yeah, Yeah, I have been raped, surprisingly, by no one in this room, but um, I've never gotten to confront those guys, so... Just a general fuck you to whoever I, uh... Yes, girl! Telling our stories and pointing out the things we'd rather turn away from, it's not an easy thing to make palatable. And I believe stand-up comedy, in its best moments, finds that way. The art form will continue to be stretched and screwed with, and on some ends of that experimentation, it may look and sound nothing like the comics you and I grew up laughing at and learning from. And I think that's pretty cool. It's a beautiful thing to see a craft with so much ability to impact us and our society only reach more people through new formats and voices and messages. I'm excited to see where comedy's honesty, where it's conscious, takes us next. And I'm looking forward to all the bits and specials that won't resonate, too. Whether comedians are here to teach us something, challenge us, or just to take us somewhere new, 
I look forward to hearing about it and hopefully laughing at it. Thanks to my guests, Jessica Holmes, Sherilyn Johnson, and Steve Patterson. This episode of The Coup was written by Ali Graham and Chris Connolly, produced by Julia De Laurentiis Johnson and Ali Graham, and it was mixed by Chandra Bullockon. Our theme song is by the magnificent Jim Guthrie, and additional music is by the Blue Dot Sessions and Art List. The Coup is made by Church and State Podcasts for the Rogers Frequency Podcast Network. If you like the show, hey, come on, tell your friends and colleagues about it. My name's Ron Tite, and I'm the host and executive producer. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on The Coup. Try to forget about the other kids. 